Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this evening's uh, seminar on reimagining urban mobility after COVID-19. Uh, this talk is part of the Oxford Martin School series on building back better and the challenges and opportunities arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jim Hall. I'm Professor of Climate Environmental Risks in the Environmental Change Institute, and I'm also lead research on the Oxford Martin Programme on Transboundary Resource Management. But this afternoon, this evening, we're talking about mobility, how we all get around, and the dramatic changes to transport behaviours have been really one of the most striking aspects of the pandemic. Pretty much overnight, streets went silent. Um, people noticed the impact on, on noise, on air pollution. Packed commuter trains and tube lines emptied and now they're being um, bailed out to the tune of billions of pounds. Um, and many of the things that used to require mobility, like coming to a lecture in the Oxford Martin School, have gone online. Um, but People are also feeling, I think, some of the deprivation of mobility, um, mobility to visit friends and family um, and to, to go on holiday. These are behavioral changes that um, our two um, speakers have, they've studied for most of their careers, um, but there are changes, dramatic changes that have happened pretty much overnight. Um, so we're in very good hands to, um, understand those changes and understand what the implications might be for the future. We have uh, Professor Tim Schwannen, who's director of the Transport Studies Unit um, in the University of Oxford and is lead researcher on the Oxford Martin Programme on Informal Cities. And uh, Dr. Jenny Middleton, who's senior research fellow in mobilities and human geography in the Transport Studies Unit. And before I hand over to uh, Tim and Jenny, um, let me remind you that this talk is being recorded um, and uh, this is very much a discussion. There will be uh, an opportunity to pose questions after we've had some opening remarks from Tim and Jenny. Um, and so if you'd like to ask a question, um, then please click on the add question button um, at the bottom right hand side of the screen. Um, and I will try and navigate my way through those questions. I think there's an opportunity to um, vote on them, um, which will bump them up to the top of the list. Um, and I'll pose them to our, our, our extremely well qualified speakers. Um, but first of all, some opening um, remarks, um, first from Tim Schwannen. And um, Tim, uh, this has been absolutely dramatic, hasn't it? But um, based on, on your understanding, take us through, um, in your own words, what has happened? Um, and the question I think many of us are asking is how much of this is going to stick in the future? And what should policymakers be doing about it? Well, thank you, Jim. Um, 
there's a lot that can be said in response to the questions you're asking. I'm going to highlight three aspects. Uh, one is that obviously what has happened is a dramatic reduction in mobility. And uh, there are now many studies being published in, in uh, the academic literature from uh, many different countries and cities. But what they show is somewhere a reduction of personal mobility of between roughly 60 to 90 percent. We did a study recently using mobile phone data for 1.1 million people in England, and it showed about 70 percent reduction at, um, at the peak. Um, and what we've seen is that gradually that reduction has come back. In the sense, it has become less. People started to be moving more again. Um, and perhaps more important than looking at the average picture, which we tend to do so often, which is typically also what the media does, is thinking about differences within or behind those averages. And in this case, one of the things that comes out quite strongly is that um, people in, with, on, on lower incomes and with more precarious jobs tend to have reduced their mobility much less. So they tend to travel more in relative terms after the lockdowns that have, been, have come in place in so many cities and countries. And the, what that shows is that one of the things we've seen is that to an extent being able to stay at home, even if the government tells you so, is a luxury. It's something that you have to be able to afford. Many people don't. Um, and that holds for cities in the UK. That holds just as much for a city like Accra in, in Ghana, where we happen to have been doing some research, and where you see that people who work in the informal economy, people who are uh, sort of relatively, um, or have a low income, they just have to go out and work for instance. So there is a big, I think one lesson that we really need to learn from this is that we need to focus on social differences, spatial differences between people rather than simply look at the average numbers. Now, of course, we know that mobility is very important and what the whole situation has shown that uh, mobility is particularly important for our economies. We knew that, we know that for a long time. You can already read it in Adam Smith, for instance but it's also very important for our well-being, our mental health. Much of the discussion about, um, about lockdowns and, and the detrimental effects on mental health is because people can't travel. It's not that travel necessarily in and of itself is bringing people uh, health benefits, mental health benefits. It is because of the activities it allows you to access in, in uh, destinations. Um, Lockdown, however, also has positives. And I think I want to highlight two. One is that what many people thought was not going to happen, governments putting in place radical restrictions on mobility, has all of a sudden happened, even in very liberal, uh, in advanced liberal democracies. Um, and the interesting thing is that it shows us that if the urgency, the perceived urgency is, is strong enough, then governments are willing to do uh, these kinds of restrictions. And that opens up new ways of thinking about what might happen once climate in the, the climate crisis really comes, uh, be, becomes much more urgent. 
Um, of course, saving lives, saving a health uh, care system is not quite the same, at least in the present, as uh, um, uh, uh, reducing or avoiding certain uh, environmental changes, but at least there's a precedent. And I think that's something that's very interesting. The other thing that's interesting is that for many people who've been locked into car-dominated lifestyles, um, they've seen something that for many transport experts is kind of the ideal scenario for the future, where we walk and cycle much more, where our lives become much more localized, where we don't drive as much, where we don't fly as much. And whether we want it or not, when we look about, when we look at the situation that transport on the global scale finds itself in as the third largest emitter of CO2 emissions, then we need to think about radical, radically different ways of doing transport. Technology is very important and we see sort of a real uh, uh, increase in, in technological innovations and a real uptake from automation to mobility as a service and digital payment systems. But technology alone or even infrastructure in, uh, development are not going to fix the problem of transport uh, contributions to CO2 emissions. We'll have to reduce mobility, however unpalatable that message is politically and also to many people. So and what this lockdown has shown is that actually we can lead lives uh, where mobility is not a central as it used to be. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that bad. The third thing I would say is that many governments have tried to seize on that momentum that the lockdown has created. We've seen that in London, where the low traffic neighborhoods have been put in place. Uh, we see that in, in cities uh, elsewhere. In fact, I would say uh, cities on the continent have been much more radical in pursuing these kinds of uh, approaches than, than, than cities in, in the UK. But we also see that now that the um, pandemic is, uh, is going on and enduring, I think we're seeing some of that early enthusiasm about low carbon mobilities um, becoming smaller. And I think we're actually in a situation where there's a risk that governments and other actors are going to stimulate any kind of mobility once the pandemic is declared over, simply because they believe this is the prime, uh, this is a very sensible way of increasing economic growth, increasing economic development. And I think there's a genuine risk that we see a re-entrenchment re of carbon-intensive mobility going forward. That's not the message. I think. Uh, I would like to uh, uh, would like to promote, but I think there's a real risk there, and we need to um, prevent that from happening. Really. Um, does that give you a good point to start with? Well, it it gets us going very well. Um, thanks very much, in indeed, Tim. Um, and there are already a lot of. Um, questions coming up in the chat, a very wide-ranging set of questions. So thank you very much indeed um, for, for posing those, um, everyone in, in the audience here. And I'll come back to you in a moment, Tim, with some of those questions. Um, but uh, before I do, um, let me ask um, uh, Dr. Jenny Middleton, 
senior research fellow um, in the transport studies unit um, to say a little bit more about um, active travel and in a moment you can explain what you mean by that um, but um, I'm sure people in in the audience will have their own thoughts about that right now but in short um, has COVID-19 actually been good for active travel? That's a great question Jim and thanks. I'm going to say I'm going to answer that with some of the points I want to make um, with the help of a few slides. So I'm, I'm going to try and share my screen. I'm delighted to be here. Just back to the market side of the invitation. So let me try and share my screen. Can you see those slides? Yeah, I can. Go ahead. Brilliant. Okay, great. So as I said, I'm going to build a bit on what Tim's just spoken about by talking a bit about active travel and has, you know, has the pandemic been good, a positive thing for active travel? Now, debates around active travel have been central to the discussion of mobility in the pandemic. But before I go further, I've got a couple of opening thoughts. And the first, and I know Tim has touched on this, but I think any discussion of urban mobility post-pandemic needs to move beyond just focusing on infrastructure alone. And by infrastructure, I'm referring here to materials, stuff, hardware, etc. And relatedly, I think we really need to take more seriously people's lived experiences and move these to the centre of how urban mobility is planned for and imagined going forward. Okay, so as Jim said, you know, what is active travel? So it can take many different forms, but is essentially when human power is used to move and historically very strong links to sustainability and health agendas. And there are many examples, you know, um, uh, roller skating, skateboarding, but walking and cycling are very much the most prevalent. But I think an important distinction to make here is between active travel and COVID-19 active travel. What does this mean? So I've got a few images here um, that many of you will be familiar with um, and things that happen to the streets in the wake of their dramatic emptying that Jim mentioned in the introduction. So many streets were closed to cars, priority given to walking and cycling, and they were configured in particular ways to facilitate appropriate social distancing. Now I've got two images here, one in Glasgow, one in Budapest, but there are many, many more. Several governments, including the UK and New Zealand, um, announced funding packages for walking and cycling infrastructure. And in Paris, they used this as an opportunity to um, promote the notion of the 15 minute city, for example, a concept where residents live and work all within a 15 minute radius of their, of their home. And then just last week, um, the um, Living Streets, um, the, former, the former pedestrians association in the UK, um, and that, you know, put this tweet out about, you know, what the new restrictions as we entered lockdown too meant for walking, you know, where, when and who were we allowed to walk with. Now, I've, I found this image and I'll leave you to guess which UK city this is, but I think it visually illustrates some of the points I want to make here today. 
Now, I don't want to unfairly critique the image as it was produced in this way to illustrate something very particular about a COVID safe streetscape, you know, in relation to flows of pedestrians and social distancing. However, I couldn't help be struck by the ways in which these pedestrians had been rendered. If you look really closely, you can make out what I think is meant to be an older couple, someone pushing a wheelchair, mother with a child. But there's also a literal whitewashing of these bodies. The image projects hollowed out, white, empty bodies, if you like. And I'm showing this as I think it's quite a good representation of a broader dominant discourse around active travel, which I think we need to challenge. And this is where historically understandings of walking and cycling often take little account of embodied experiences. So a non-disabled, unencumbered white adult male is often assumed and what I want to say here is that actually it's important to challenge these assumptions and not all our experiences of active travel are the same. Now I came across this um, article in The Guardian a few weeks ago and it talks about you know the many examples of where you know restaurants and bars went onto the streets and you know priority was given to cyclists and pedestrians and in the article, they interview the mayor of um, the cycling mayor of Coventry, Adam Tranter. And Adam Tranter makes a couple of really um, interesting points. And what the first one is that he says that for cities to continue prioritizing walkers and cyclists, the only thing required is political will and leadership. And this might be something to reflect upon a bit. But then he moves on to ask a question which I actually think is central to any discussion of post-pandemic mobility futures. And that is, who do urban centres serve? Now, to me, this is a vital question, particularly in terms of how certain users are privileged over others. And I think this goes back to your question, Jim, about, you know, has the pandemic been good for active travel? And I think the question is, good for who? Um, and I'm not alone in making this argument. And you know how certain users are often privileged over others, and this can be ex exemplified by some of the um, some of the low traffic neighbourhoods that we might want to talk about in, in a bit, where you know literally the shut the closing down of some streets has pushed air pollution and congestion to other areas. And I think I've got a couple of other examples that I'd just like to talk through quickly. One is sort of a bit closer to home. Now, my family are quite fortunate to have access to urban green space near to our house. And during the first lockdown, you know, although the amount of people decreased, so, you know, you, the, it wasn't as busy, it was still necessary to navigate a range of sort of different encounters, you know, and managing, you know, I'm sure everyone had very similar experiences in terms of going out for these walks. But after a few days, I started to find these quite stressful. And, you know, these were walks that meant to contribute to our physical and mental well-being. And I found myself barking at my children, you know, stay to the left, don't go too close, you know, like herding cats. And the children were actually chastised several times by older adults for not moving appropriately. And I felt this like pressure and weight of societal responsibility that began to make these walks far from enjoyable. And I've no doubt others had similar experiences. Now, conflicts between pedestrians and between pedestrian cyclists are nothing new in urban space. You know, these happen all the time. But I think in the wider context of the COVID-19 pandemic, these tensions of these encounters are heightened. 
And a politics emerges from the restrictions placed on us by the viruses, who is able to walk, for example, and who isn't. And these expectations of what it is to be a responsible walker, maintaining acceptable social distancing. And there's sort of been this societal repositioning of walking during the outbreak, where our bodies and our differential experiences of walking have really become magnified and sort of center stage. But I think, you know, this, this um, example I talk about with my kids, I mean, that's nothing compared to, and sits in very stark contrast to the traumatic events that unfolded as the Indian government announced the 21 day lockdown in March. So as migrant workers fled the cities back to their villages, there was no space on the overcrowded buses still operating. And this left thousands of workers who now had no work, little choice but to walk, often hundreds of miles home. Now, many died on these treacherous journeys with others arriving at villages to find they were no longer welcome due to fears of the virus being brought with them. So the impact of the virus highlights even more acutely how the benefits and positive experiences frequently associated with walking and a lot of the positive experiences that have been talked about in, in sort of the broader discourse are far from universal. And in, in the case of walking, it's not one thing to all people. But I guess the question is, how do we situate these examples in the broader sort of discourse of the benefits of active travel? And I think here, Osborne and Grant Smith make an important point where they talk about the significance of our intersectional identities to our experiences of and access to the city. And I think the point I'd like to make here is that who we are and how we move are important. Our moving bodies matter. And I cannot emphasize this, this enough. So, I mean, you could take the example of jaywalking and the ways it's highly racialized. So in 2019, 90% of illegal walking tickets in New York City were issued to black and Hispanic people. Before he was shot in Ferguson, Missouri, Michael Brown was stopped for allegedly jaywalking. The journalist Michael Segaloff um, shared this memory in the summer of the once being stopped by the police for cycling too flamboyantly. And then we can go in the UK to um, dis disability activists who've really been sharing their concerns for several years about the dangers of shared space, particularly those who are visually impaired. Now, there have been many positive steps in making visible the experiences of more, I guess, more marginalised groups in transport planning processes. So this is the new five-year um, strategy for living streets in the UK. And they're very clear about their commitment to um, engaging with what they term all walks of life in the promotion of walking and streets for everyone. And this is great. And then if you go across to the US, um, the work of the Untokening Collective, they address concerns with justice and equity in the transport planning process. And they focus specifically on mobility justice. And they understand this as how power and inequality shape mobilities in addition to how other actors such as the state govern and control mobility and i think this is really a really important point and they, they sort of, in the context of the pandemic they say that for those of us with the privilege to choose physical immobility or those of us with the privilege sorry to choose physical immobility must protect and uplift those in our communities who are continuing to be mobile Mobility justice calls for us to see our lives as interdependent with the movement of all other people and to honour their stories and histories. 
being rooted in a vision for mobility justice in this moment means embracing the collective responsibility that we all have to keep each other safe and to see mobility and immobility as an integral part of that. But I guess I'll just finish by saying, you know, how do we move this thinking and this focusing, this focus on mobility justice? How does that become more mainstream? And I guess if we're thinking about what lessons can be learned from urban mobility and how we move from just focusing on the stuff, the hardware, the infrastructure, in the context of active travel, I think we really need to center our differentiated experiences and take more seriously our moving bodies, who we are and how we move matter. Um, so I'm just, I'll finish there and I'm just gonna try and, oh. Thanks very much indeed um, for those thoughts, Jenny. And in that, you, you've actually um, spoken very much to some of the questions about um, inequality of the pandemic and inequalities of mobility, um, which have been posed in, in the chat already. Um, but I, I wanted to go straight to the to the question, which is, is top of the list here. Um, about the 15 minute neighborhood um, and I'm, I'm sure you've got thoughts of that um, uh, because in I mean in, in some senses for um, the, the the idea of things being accessible um, is uh, is attractive to uh, commuters at least but um, there seems to be some inequality more or less embedded in that 15 minutes depends on how fast you walk um so what do you make of the 15 minute neighborhood jenny i mean i think it's a i mean it's a it's a it's a nice idea and in an ideal world i think it you know great but i think again it goes back to this question of who's included and excluded from such an idea you know it assumes that you're 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 able to afford to live in a particular place and have access to you know your place of employment we all know that you know a lot of people's commuting distance are getting greater and greater, and particularly with some of the economic fallout of the of the pandemic, you know, employment unemployment is going up. So, and then you know, you mentioned Jim, yeah, about it assumes that you can maybe move in particular ways, and you know, it again assumes a sort of a. a, a a temporality to, to a rhythm to your movement that that yeah makes a series of assumptions so i think in in as an idea i think it's an interesting one but i think in practice it excludes a lot of different groups and i know i know tim has had some thoughts about the um about this notion as well tim, yeah. Do you want to come in on? yeah yeah um i think jenny is making a really important point uh, it is, it, it, it's a very static understanding of how lives unfold. Um, I've been working for the same employer for more than 10 years now, but that is also because of the relative privilege that I have. If you work in precarious jobs, temporary contracts, it's going to be very difficult to do that within 15 minutes from, from the house. So I think we need to be very, very careful with these assumptions. I would also say that the notion of a 15-minute uh, neighborhood or a 15-minute city is uh, sort of something that has been bandied around in urban planning and transport planning for, for decades. It's just 
a new way of thinking about self-containment. And it's not hugely different as an idea from what in UK planning post Second World War were the, the new towns, which were also meant to be self-contained, where the idea was that people were working and shopping and, and seeing their friends in the, uh, the little place or the little new community that was being built. And we've seen the same in France and Switzerland, in uh, Sweden and the Netherlands. And what all of these developments have done is become anything but self-contained, because what you see is people move a lot in and out because they work elsewhere, because they have the social networks elsewhere. Um, so it's really, it, it's a nice idea, but I think it's really more of a marketing concept. I mean, it works very nicely in a political context, but uh, it defies the complexity of our mobility and our everyday lives. Mm. Thank you. Um, we've got a, a, a series of questions. Um, which are more orientated towards the uh, the economics of urban mobility, um, and um, the opener is what does this this mean for the planning of sustainable transport um, transitions? And the, the question really is, um, think with um, public transport revenues declining dramatically. Um, uh, public transport operators, local authorities um, have very little financial room to maneuver and how should they be, be navigating now, particularly um, uh, given that at the same time they're um, committed to reducing carbon emissions and that involves considerable investment as well. Yeah, it's a really difficult question. And uh, I think more and more studies are now coming up that show that um, actually mobility levels, once a lockdown is ended, uh, sort of bounce back quite significantly, quite easily. But the one thing that really lack, continues to lag behind is, is public transport use. And I think only this week there was something in, in The Guardian that was showing that um, um, attitudes towards public transport in this country could have been set back by about 20 years because of what's happening. Um, so it's not looking great. Um, and I think what will happen is that we'll, we'll, we'll get renewed discussion about what we want from our public transport system and who should pay for that. Do we see it as a genuine public service or do we see it as something that needs to be um, sort of privately funded and 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 self-funding in that regard. Um, I don't know where these discussions are going, but um, I think we will have that discussion. And the interesting thing is, it's not just public transport; it's the same with uh, shared mobility. So car sharing, bike sharing, the whole idea of mobility as a service. I think a lot of all these these quite optimistic ideas about how our behaviors will change are sort of uh, seriously at risk um, uh, going forward. And I think that relates more, oh, sorry. No, please, I was gonna invite you for, for your thoughts on public transport, Jenny. Well, I think it relates to the point I'm making about taking seriously our bodies and how we move. You know, will all of 
we've all adjusted our behavior in terms of, you know, washing our hands, hand sanitizer, you know, having to wear masks. And, you know, I had to take a taxi the other week and I, it's the first time I'd taken a taxi and I found it really, you know, quite a disconcerting experience. The same when I first time I've been on a bus, you know, I've done that a few times now, but it's, it's, um, you know, how, how our, our habits, our bodily habits, and there's, we need to sort of connect those two conversations together of how, you know, what, what is it that about that, that is making, you know, I think it was the RAC that, that had done some of the study that Tim was mentioning that was reported in the Guardian about people are still going to keep using their cars. And it's about that safe space of the car, being in the car protected from others, if you have the privilege of not having to take public transport and can move in these ways and so there's this whole series of contradictions going on and i think it's when you start to look at sort of micro scale encounters that you can sort of link these things together a bit and um you know think how our sort of yeah how our embodied habits and competencies and you know how they have evolved through the pandemic and what that means for how we move and i think there needs to be a much stronger connection between these two sides of the coin Jenny, if I can, can stick with you, um, because there's, there's a, a question which Siddhartha Aurora posed, one of several questions from Siddhartha. Thank you for engaging so enthusiastically. Um, but in, in your talk, Jenny, um, you referred to the importance of um, political leadership. Mm. Um, and uh, the Siddhartha's question here is whether, um, well, what types of democratic process um, might make a difference in this context? Do we have examples where transformations in political structures have significantly transformed cities? Um, I think, I think, I think it's, the political will in a lot of places is there. But again, it's this, I think there's a, there's a lot of disconnect. And I think also, you know, the, the funding, the economics of these things, you know, Although the government announced this massive, you know, did this big song and dance about, you know, the, all this money for walking and cycling, it's nothing compared to what's been invested in in other schemes. Such I'm not going to mention which ones, but you know, other schemes, you know, it's it's a drop in the ocean. So I think the political will and leadership is there in a lot of cases, but I think again, it's, I mean, Tim and. Um, a former colleague at TSU, Denver Nixon, and he might want to jump in here, have done quite a lot of work on grassroots organisations in walking and cycling. And I think there's there's a lot of fantastic work going on at grassroots level. So it's like, okay, how does that link up? How do you upscale some of that work? Because there, there, there are some, there's some brilliant work going on. I don't know whether, Tim, you want to jump in here to say a bit about some of those schemes and how they potentially link to broader scales. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of activity at grassroots level uh, around cycling and, and, and walking, particularly around cycling. And I would say much more in Latin America than in uh, than in Europe or, or the UK. And I think that has real potential. And many of these schemes and activities are also very democratic in uh, in the way they're organised and, and the way they um, the way they function. But upscaling remains an issue. So it can't just be bottom up. There needs to be change top down as well. And um, 
we've seen, at least in the UK, a wave of citizen assembly initiatives. Um, and I've been in a couple of them, and at first I was actually quite skeptical about them. Um, but if you look at the national one that was held just before the lockdown uh, started, actually it ran, I think, maybe through some of the, some of the lockdown. Actually, they've come up with a set of very sensible recommendations uh, for national policy. And I would say they're much more, uh, in, in, I wouldn't use the word radical, but uh, to denote what they're saying, but they're much more forward thinking than most of the policy, even most, a lot of the, the city level policy. Um, it's not a panacea. It's not uh, the silver bullet that will, that will bypass some of the issues we have with decision making. But they do show that if you take people seriously and you, you think really carefully about participation in decision making, you can get to new sets of um, ideas and, and, and uh, better policies, I would say. Now, both of you have, have, have spoken um, quite a lot already about the um, inequalities exposed by the pandemic and um, the um, inequality in, in some of our kind of framing or implicit inequality in our framing of, of urban mobility. Um, the, the, the top two questions um, we've got in front of us here um, kind of try to probe that a bit more deeply um, and in particular um, suggesting that uh, a lot of the, the thinking about the, the implications of the pandemic for mobility has been um, very much focused on on middle class experiences and needs. Um, do you want to? Do either of you want to say a little bit more about? Yeah, that? okay. I'm I'm happy to to, to start this. Um, I think that's that's a correct observation for a lot of the studies. Um, I think part of the issue is that many of the studies that have been done uh, rely on smart or on mobile phone data, where you know very little about who is owning the telephone. So you have to make assumptions. Uh, but if you do it in a sensible way, you can get, um, uh, you, you can still draw some inferences about what is happening um, in, in uh, lower income and more disadvantaged groups. There are a couple of studies that have unique uh, access to unique data. And I know of one that's been submitted to, um, I think it was science this week, this is sort of using data from from uh, Colombia that, that looks really, really great. And we've been doing some work in uh, some of the peripheral semi-informal neighborhoods in, in Medellin in um, Colombia. And it's a project with uh, low-income mothers. And um, we've used qualitative methods. Basically, it's kind of a panel study using multiple qualitative methods. And uh, it sh what it shows is not hugely different from, from what other studies have shown. The one interesting thing I would highlight is that, uh, at least for this group of mothers, uh, some of the key issues, some of the key concerns are about how can I get access to high quality food or food that I can feed my family with? Um, how can I look after and care for 
my extended family members who may live in other at other addresses and i'm strictly speaking officially not allowed to visit because the imagination of the government of what is a household is the people who live on one address and they don't really think about uh, uh, households and extended family networks sort of uh, groups that care for one another in in, in a slightly more comp with a with a more complex geography and the third thing is things around uh, access to the church and uh, being able to to go to mars and, and uh, because religion is such an important part of people's uh, spiritual well-being and also because the church is a very important place to meet your friends and, and uh, undertake all kinds of social activities. So it has this very strong social role. Um, I think what we see that there are, we're certainly not the only ones who have these kinds of data, but because qualitative re research with qualitative methods in these kinds of communities takes more time to uh, be undertaken and, and to be analyzed and to be written up, that it doesn't, it get, doesn't get published as much as quickly as uh, some of the studies that we have uh, we have seen published in, in in recent weeks and months. Thanks, um, Tim. Any thoughts from 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 you? Anything you want to add, Jenny, to those thoughts on yeah, inequality? A couple of points. Um, one about the data, and I think there, you know, there there is an important point to make about the type of data that is informing a lot of the decisions that are being made. And you know, if we think about data that might be, as Tim's talked about, co-produced with communities, you know, a lot of sort of more experiential, qualitative data. Going back, I know there's, there's some work that's been done in ethnomethodology where they've where they've focused on, you know, people's, you know, people's micro movements, how they might swerve in certain ways to avoid people, and you know, that data takes time to acquire. And I think it's it be, it's it needs to have a bigger it needs to be more visible and have a bigger presence in some of these debates so that relates to the data but going back to this point about social you know exclusion you know women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic in terms of the caring responsibilities and that cuts across multiple different settings so and i think it's important that we don't think about you know active travel, urban mobility, whichever lens we're using in isolation. And we need to take account of these broader inequalities and sort of join up the dots, I think, rather than just focusing on, look, here's a transport infrastructure, here's, here's an infrastructure that's going to, you know, make social distancing easier. But how does this relate to broader structural issues? And I think that that's important about not focusing, you know, working in silos, but bringing these things together and knitting them together, I think is, is important, particularly around issues of social, um, you know, exclusion. Thanks. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to come back before we finish to um, the question of what sorts of things should we specifically be aiming to do? Um, because so far, and perhaps not surprisingly, we've taken on a, uh, a, a fairly critical tenor. Um, and I think we might get a bit more critical now because where I'm going next, this is um, a, uh, a seminar on urban mobility. Um, but it would be surprising if we didn't talk about aviation in the context of COVID-19. Um, and uh, in the chat, there are some 
some broad questions about um, the future of aviation, the viability um, of very large um, pieces of uh, airport infrastructure. Um, one might not even mention a third runway, um, but also much closer to home, um, the challenge for hypermobile academics um, and what we should be um, doing um, post-pandemic in terms of our aviation behavior. Who wants to start? I'm going to hand that to Tim to okay. fix that one. Okay, let, let me start no, with the... Let, let me start with the academic mobility. Because um, I think that is an important question. I think um, many people are now quite optimistic about we, we will be traveling much less and we'll see uh, lots of online conferences uh, continuing once the pandemic is declared over. I have yet to see that because I think flying is really deeply embedded in how academia works. It's really a, a central part of, of our practice. Um, I think we'll see much more goodwill, but we'll see significant return to, to flying again. Um, some of the other questions that were raised around what to do with, um, with airports is going to be very interesting. I think what we'll see happen is uh, we see a really strong rationalization of the service providers. And we'll see uh, both at the, we'll see some of the traditional carriers disappear, the ones that were always already on the brink of, uh, uh, of collapse. Um, and we'll see some of the low cost carriers disappear because I think that business model is really difficult to, to, to sustain going forward. So we'll see, um, we'll, we'll probably see more, fewer operators. Um, and that raises the question whether we need as much uh, airport capacity as we have. I think some airports will become stranded assets, um, which is maybe not that bad from an environmental point of view. But if we think about transitions and if we think about just transitions, then we'll have to think very carefully about what to do with the people who are dependent on these airports for their livelihoods, either directly because they work in the sector or we uh, sort of indirectly because of uh, the effects on the local, local economy. I would not want to be a, a policymaker in Crawley, for instance, at the moment, because it's, it's, that's a sort of area that will be hit very, very hard for, for, for quite some time going forward. Now, at the same time, there's also an optimism about um, new ways of flying, I would call them, more urban flying, the unmanned aerial vehicles, the Uber taxis, that kind of uh, 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 development. And I think we'll actually see more of that um, going on. And um, before the, I think the, since 2019, I think almost 60% of the media requests that I received and received in my role was about how long it will take or how short it will be before we will be flying in, in sort of Uber 
style taxis um, from one side to the other. And this is a classic case of what in innovation studies are known as hype disappointment cycles. These are technologies that get hyped very quickly to, uh, with a view to, to uh, um, getting more uh, capital invested in the development and to change regulation. But what we'll see is that uh, developments are unlikely to be able to keep up with the expectations because they've become so unrealistic that at some point the moment of deflation, deflation will, will kick in. Um, and if that doesn't and the development were, developments were to sort of continue in the way that some believe, then I think we should still ask what is the point of this and who is benefiting from this? And it brings us back to the question about inequality because flying by with Uber is not going to be for the majority of people. It's not going to be for you and me. I can't see that work. It will be for a select few who will be able to, uh, to benefit from these kinds of technologies. So I am quite critical about them. Um, and I think we should not expect that they will dramatically change how urban mobility is functioning. And ju just to add to the point on academic flying, I mean, I don't think it's just academic flying. I think lots of other sectors that rely on meeting up face to face. And I think, you know, the pandemic has shown that, you know, it's, been a, it's opened up spaces in a way in terms of the, it's made the spaces available to people who wouldn't necessarily have been able to, you know, people attending this talk, for example, you know, across across the globe. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of innovation around how events are run, but I think we still need to think quite creatively about that, you know, what what is an event? And I think, you know, there's a sort of, I guess, again, going back to the body and the, the importance of the body, we're social beings, we, we crave being, to, well, most people crave being together, and you know, being in front of a screen, it, the fatigue sets in. So I've, I've, I'm sort of, I'm craving, you know, more innovation around how we make these events more sort of interactive, um, in, inclusive. Um, yeah. So I think I think there's a lot more to go. And I, I, yeah, like Tim, I, I'm not sure the flying is going to go away as 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 easily as some would necessarily hope. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm conscious of time here. And as I say, I, I wanted to um, to uh, end um, by um, asking a, a, a more normative question. Um, I mean, what what should we do at this point? Um, and it's summed up quite well by uh, by Robin Hickman in, in his question. Um, how would an equitable, low carbon response to COVID be different? What would it look like? Um, so, I mean, you've fantastically exposed some of the, the nuance and complexity of thinking about mobility. Um, but uh, what do we do? Do you want to go first, Jenny? I'm going to let, I'm going to let you go first. Um, there's a range of things that uh, need to be done. And I think you can rank them from, uh, from, from the very practical to uh, 
to the much more abstract. And I prefer to start at that last, because I think we need to have a fundamental and honest public debate about what we want from our transport systems. Because we want too many different things from them at the same time. Because when, on, historically, transport planning was part of economic policy. And it was about encouraging economic development. Um, and we see a lot of that still coming through. Now, that has been expanded over time. There's a lot of talk, of course, about the environmental aspects and the environmental externalities. And that's really important. And I mentioned sort of the role of transport in, in CO2 emissions. Um, but I, I would say at, la at least over the, well, over the last 20 years or so, there's more and more attention being paid to the, the role of transport systems in, um, in reinforcing and sometimes creating social inequalities. Um, and if you want policies that do all three of these, well, good luck with finding them because there are not that many that will really do that. We're sort of very strongly still thinking in terms of win-win uh, situations. And we can't. We need to make some, some, some really hard choices about what we want from our transport systems. And then my view is we need to think we need to privilege the social in it, sort of the, the, the social dimension, the social inequality, and the environmental aspects. And that will mean that we will have to put in place policies that will reduce mobility. However difficult that is, but we will have to do some of this and we'll have to have honest discussions that go beyond thinking about transport in simply quantitative terms to think about qualities and think about okay what kinds of transport are really needed um when for whom and where and do that in a much more equitable way than we do at present so that's one end one set of things you can think of. at the same time at the other end i think we need to um we need to be critical we need to be careful not to put too much emphasis on on big prestige projects uh, for changing mobility radically whether that is but major bus rapid transit corridors or metros of course they're important and they need to be developed but we need to think much more about uh, what is really happening at, at at, at grassroots level and think about what we can do to change, uh, what we can do in terms of changing provision by not thinking everything through the street, through the state, but think about uh, uh, grassroots organizations that do all sorts of things. We need to think about how we embed uh, um, transport and, 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 and uh, developing skills into the education system. We need to think about, uh, so that for instance, something like, uh, uh, like, like cycling becomes much more than it already is part of uh, how you grow up and it becomes sort of really second nature for people. Um, and we need to uh, think about how we reallocate some of the priorities in the infrastructures that we already have because there's not going to be much money for building large infrastructures in new we'll have to do different things with what we currently have and one thing that i think is 
actually proving to be really effective is to reallocate road space away from vehicles to other forms of transport. And so that's a, it's not a simple measure because it's politically very sensitive, but it's not a measure that has to involve as much money as some of the big shiny new projects and new developments. Thanks a lot, Tim. Let me pass um, uh, briefly to, to, to you, um, Jenny. And um, I'm, one thing implicit in Robin's question here is a question about place. Um, it's not just about practices and dynamics, it's about what places are like. Yeah, and I think, you know, that as a geographer, geography, of course, matters. And I think, I mean, just to build on what Tim has said and sort of Rob's um, question, two, two points, and I think it's this joining up of the dots. And this isn't just academics, Tend, there's a lot of particularly around walking there's a lot of academic work on walking that is quite siloed for example and I'd like to see a joining up of those silos but then not only just across academia so we run out of the TSU and exec ed course where we bring policymakers and practitioners into dialogue with academics and this issue of translation is a really important one how do you translate some of this rich work going on in academia and this fantastic work going on in policy and practice how does that translate and how does that work you know how do you pull together these interfaces and i think that's really important and then just building on what tim has said about about research with um sort of you know looking at grassroots stuff i think if we're going to center questions of inequality and differential experiences co-produced research with local communities is really, really important. And that produces very different types of data, which can then complement some of the more established and more traditional forms of data. So I think that's, that's I'll just finish with those two points. That's, that's great. Thanks um, so much to um, Tim Schwann and, and Jenny Middleton. Um, I, the, the, the impacts of COVID-19 on urban mobility have been so dramatic and we've we've all been observing them and interpreting them in in our own terms and through our own personal experiences so it and it, it's been wonderful to have these um incredibly informed and insightful perspectives to to help us all to think through some of the implications of what's been going on and what might happen next and um, as, as Tim has suggested to, to really engage in some form of debate about um, what the future holds or should hold for urban mobility so thank you all very much indeed um, the next um, uh, session in this series is um, with Professor Susan Jebb and Sir Charles Godfrey in conversation on rethinking diet, weight and health in and after the COVID-19 um, pandemic. Um, and that is taking place next Thursday, the 19th of November at 5 p.m. Um, and you're very welcome to, to join that. Um, and to register, please um, 
apparently press the green button at the uh, the bottom of the screen um, and also of course keep an eye out constantly on the Oxford Martin School's website because um, there is a uh, incredible wealth and variety of, uh, of talks um, not just in this series but on all sorts of topics but thank you all very much for joining us this evening